I'm going to ask two things of you this morning. One, I need a volunteer. Wait, wait. Bef- I don't like asking for volunteers before they know what they're volunteering. Uh, I just need someone to read one verse. One verse. Uh, it's on page 1636 in those maroon Bibles. Can I get a volunteer to read one verse? John 11.50. That's the verse. John 11.50. We got one volunteer. Thank you, Amy. All right. My, the only thing I ask is you not run off with this microphone like someone did in the first service. Okay. I have to find it. John 11.50. While she's turning there, here's what I'm going to tell you. We're going to get to where she is. It's just going to take a while. All right, but we're going to get there. I am just asking for a little bit of patience to, for us to get to John eleven fifty. This verse is amazing. It'll change the way you think and feel about everything, but it's just going to take a while to get there. Here we go. Where are we going? And here it is. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. All right. Thank you, Amy. Can you really grow without tension? I'll ask again. Can you really grow without being stretched, without tension? New. Okay. So here's what I believe. I believe Jesus is the most compelling person to have ever lived. And I believe he's worth following with everything we have. I believe he's cooler than Beyonce. He's wiser than Brene Brown. He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson. And he's more disruptive than a young Mark Zuckerberg. I'll try that again. I believe Jesus is compelling. The most compelling person I've ever lived. And I believe he's worth following with everything you have. I believe he's cooler than Beyonce. Is Beyonce cool? Yes, very cool. Jesus is cooler than Beyonce. Is Brene Brown wise? Yes. They do not just hand out number one podcasts to anybody. Brene Brown's very wise. She's got a lot to say. I've learned a lot from Brene Brown. Is Jordan Peterson controversial? Google him. All right, he's said stuff. And is Mark Zuckerberg, a young Mark Zuckerberg, disruptive? Do you ever wonder why nobody looks you in the eye anymore? It's because when Mark Zuckerberg was at Harvard, he had an idea. All right, and it disrupted everything. I believe Jesus is the most compelling person ever lived. And he's worth following the everything we have. And now, me saying that is a lot like at a couple's retreat, someone saying their spouse is awesome. Right? It's like, well, preacher, you have to say that. It's your job. We pay you to say things like that. In order for us to get there, I believe we have to embrace some tension to get there, to where we can really say from the heart, Jesus is compelling. I really think something has happened, and it's, it's going to be awkward. All right, I'm going to say it, and it's going to make you squirm a little bit. But if you can just embrace the tension... We'll get somewhere cool, okay? I think when we read the Gospels, we're like, I guess that's cool, right? Like, you know, know, Jesus will say something and says, and the crowds were amazed. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's amazing, I guess. Let me give you an example. 
All right? If you can embrace, I, I don't know how amazing this is. If you can really get to a place where you can be honest and say, like, everybody's feeling something, everybody's vibing here, and I, I don't get it. If you can get there, we're off to the races. Here's Matthew 22, 30, 23 through 33. Here's what's going on. This is one of Jesus' sayings, all right? The Sadducees come to trap him, and so they ask him a tricky question, all right? It's, a, it's the old seven brothers and one bride trick, trick a all right? So they back him into a corner. They ask him this weird question, all right? And Jesus gives an answer, and it says, the crowds were amazed, Watch what's going to happen. We're going to read this, and all of you will be amazed. I guarantee it. Here we go. John 22, 23 through 33. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him, Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. That's weird. That was like a form of social security back then, right? There wasn't any like government programs, and so it's called leveret marriage. Uh, women didn't have a ton of rights in the ancient world, and so this was a way to protect women from poverty. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, finally right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. Okay. Jesus replied, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like angels. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Just like you are. Okay? It's all fun and games till somebody loses an eye. We're gonna, you're gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm watching for you, Lori. You won't lose an eye, I promise. What? Look, I've been in meetings where they're really tense and someone is like, this is how it is and this is how it goes for all time and you have to believe this. And someone in a really cool way is like, well, have you thought about this? And that person's like, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Wow. And you know what? We're all like, wow, that was pretty cool. We're not like, holy cow, we're astonished. Whoa. It says the crowds were astonished. And we're like, at what? Like he didn't even answer the question. These people are like, hey, Jesus, something keeping us up at night. You know, these seven guys marry one girl in the resurrection. Who's she married to? And it's like, I don't, why are we thinking about this? Like, I don't know, wait and see, right? And Jesus is like, they're going to be like angels. And God is the God of the living. And everyone's like, whoa. And we're like, yeah. Let me give you another example. We're going to close that loop. I forgot to close that loop in the first service, so remind me to close that loop. I just left that open, all right? We're going to close that loop. Here's another one. Kurt Vonnegut, we talked about him last week. Remember, he's the guy with the shape of stories. Not a Christian, okay? He's an atheist, okay? So if he were here, he's, he's passed away, but if he were here, he would not be down with what we're talking about. Here's what he said. If it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. 
And we hear that, and we're like, me too. Yeah. Right. That. You know, that the Sermon on the Mount is really good. It's so good. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't want to be alive. Ugh. If we can embrace some of the tension to just go, are people seeing something I'm not? I think that's where real growth can occur. Okay? Because let me give you an example of one of those statements of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Tell me if this makes you want to be alive. Matthew 5.40. If anyone wants to sue you, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Mercy and pity. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. You're like, hmm. Uh... Yes? Okay. So what does this mean for how I'm supposed to live and breathe and move through the world? Like, I'm supposed to be a doormat? And Christians have wrestled with this for the ages, by the way. Some Christians, their solution to this is be like, uh, Jesus was just preaching to Israel, and they got it, and we don't, so you don't have to do anything with this. Like, it's just for that audience, right? That is a real strategy some people take, because this has confounded people for a long time. We don't know what to do with this. Is Jesus just saying be a doormat? Someone sues you, give them more money than they ask for? If it wasn't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. We're like, I'm not there, Kurt. All right? And if we can allow ourselves, again, I know this is church, but if you can allow yourselves to just be like, I have questions, I'm a little lost. I think that's where real growth can take place. Where does some of that tension come from? Where do some of the answers, how do we, how do we understand what Jesus is getting at? How do we move from, like, confused by Jesus to Jesus being the most compelling person? He's cooler than Beyonce, right? How do we move there? He's wiser than Brene Brown. He just told me if someone sues me, give them more money than they're asking for. How is that wise? Like, what in the world is happening? Well, part of the way we can get there is through a book called The Apocrypha. Now, I just raised your blood pressure a little bit, and I want to calm you just a second, okay? But again, let's just embrace some of this for a second, okay? I just got to stop doing that. I'm going to hurt somebody. It's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. Part of the way we can solve some of this tension is through a, a collection of books called the Apocrypha. Now, one of the most beautiful things about our denomination is that we have this mantra where it talks about on doctrinal issues we will discuss, but we will not divide. All right? So there are Christians who have varying perceptions and opinions about the Apocrypha. I'm going to share with you mine, which I think is beautiful and compelling and awesome. But I also understand it's not everybody's in this room, okay? But it's mine, and I'm going to share with you, like, hey, I think Jesus had this perspective of the Apocrypha. I think here's how the Apocrypha can really help us see how Jesus is awesome. Now, I am not trying to chip away at your foundation, okay? I'm trying to fill out the forest, all right? Jesus lived in the real world, in a real world with real concerns, all right? And some of that real-world concerns get explained through this book called the Apocrypha. Now, what is the Apocrypha? It's a collection of 14 books. Uh, here, here they are listed there. That were written uh, from Palestine, essentially, 
from about 450 B.C. to about 120 B.C. So the last prophet in Israel prophesies in 400 B.C. His name is Malachi. He's like chronologically the last prophet. He prophesies, and then a lot of history happens, okay? Like 400 years ago from, from today is like the pilgrim time in American history, all right? So from the, the last prophet in Israel to when Jesus shows up on the scene, you got 400 years. And we're like, what happened in that time? The Apocrypha fills out those details. Now, my perspective on the Apocrypha is the same of, from Jews of Jesus' day. So Jews of Jesus' day did not, and Jews since do not, consider the Apocrypha canonical, but view them as important historical, ethical, and devotional works, meaning these 14 books are not considered God-inspired, God-breathed Scripture. Right? So we've got, we've got like the Gospel of John, which is what we're starting to look at today. When we read the Gospel of John, we are hearing the Word of God. The Apocrypha, I do not believe, is the Word of God. I believe it was an important historical, ethical, and devotional work that happened around that time, and it really helps us fill out so much of what's going on in Jesus' day. Let me just give you an example. Remember our whole uh, one bride for seven brothers scenario? Okay, and everyone was amazed. That's a direct quote from Tobit 3, 8 through 9. Okay, here's Tobit 3, 8 through 9. Uh, See, you have already been married to the seven husbands and have not uh, borne them the name of a single one of them. Why do you beat us? Because your husbands are dead. Go with them that we may never ha- see a son or daughter of yours. We're miss- I'm missing the first slide of this, but here's what happens. There's a woman named Sarah, and she marries seven guys, and there's a demon who is killing each one of the husbands. And Sadducees, which Matthew's gospel tells us they didn't believe in a resurrection, they viewed this story as proof positive. Like, look, a resurrection complicates things. Who's she married to? And when Jesus answers... God takes care of the dead. The reason they're amazed by this is because Jesus is honoring this woman. He's saying, this woman, Sarah, God's going to take care of her. Just like he is the God of Abraham. God's care over your life doesn't stop when you die. It was wildly controversial. But we can understand it. It gets filled out through the Apocrypha. Same thing with this passage here. What happens? If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Here's what we know. Anti-Semitism. You think it's a problem today? It is a problem today. It's terrible. It's awful. It's evil. It's demonic. Anti-Semitism was a humongous problem in Jesus' day. Israel was under Roman occupation. That meant that they were in the promised land, but Rome was governing over them, and they were cruel. They were cruel, and they were just seeking to wipe out the Jews. And so one of the things that happened was rich Roman landowners, in order for farm, Jewish farmers to exist, they would lend them money. But they would lend them money at crazy interest rates, right? Like they're the original payday loan, okay? Like 300, 400%. And so what happened was these poor Jewish farmers can't pay it. They're stuck. What are we going to do? And so Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you, and he's saying, and they will. It's a regular occurrence in Jesus' day. When they come for you, don't just give them your shirt. Hand over your coat as well. Now, here's what's amazing about Jesus, right? 
He's cooler than Beyonce. He's wiser than Brene Brown. He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson. And he's more disruptive than a young Mark Zuckerberg. How? Roman culture was more prudish than Victorian England. All right? There, that's a myth that a lot of us think. Like Rome was like, woohoo! It was not. It was very prudish. And in Roman culture, it was, a, it was a, a, a deep and shameful thing to force someone into public nudity. If you force someone into public nudity, you are viewed as a barbarian and were thought of like, just get out of culture. We don't do business with you. You're a barbarian. You're, you are a byword. Right? Like think, think Harvey Weinstein. Think Bill Cosby. Like we don't, ooh, you're a pariah. Right? That, that was the perception. And so what Jesus is saying is this. If somebody comes for your coat, give them your underwear. Get naked. Because what's going to happen? That Roman landowner is going to be like, ah, wow, no, no, stop, stop, stop. I didn't do it. Not me, not me. That's not what I want. And nobody's going to want to do business with that Roman landowner. You start to see how subversive Jesus is? That's really funny. It's okay. That's funny. Jesus said it. Jesus did it. That's, that is nonviolent resistance. There's a reason MLK and Gandhi both said where we got the idea for nonviolence resistance was Jesus of Nazareth because he's suggesting doing things like this. He is not saying, when Rome comes, be a doormat. When your enemies treat you a certain way, figure out how to just let them get the world from you. No. He's not engaging in nerdy first-year seminary debates. Hey, whose wife is she really? And you're like, wow, Jesus is really wise, I guess. He's redirecting the conversation. God cares. God cares more than you care. God sees your suffering, sees your injustice, and he cares. So we're going to talk about the Apocrypha for a hot minute. Then we're going to get into that death sentence because we're going to start to see Jesus' absolute fearlessness in an unjust world. Jesus came into a world that didn't work the way it was supposed to. Jesus came into a world with cancer diagnoses. Where, work, where employers harass us and we feel like we can't do anything to fight back. And Jesus applied his wisdom to say, here's how you navigate. And here's what he's saying. Here's like a thrust, a theme that runs through John's gospel that we can't understand John's biography of Jesus until we understand this. If you're tired of Roman oppression, you cannot respond to it with oppression. Jesus is saying this, we don't, the people of God, do not participate in the economics and the politics of Rome. The people of God do not participate in the economics and the politics of Rome. The people of God do not do things the way the United States does them. The people of God do not operate under that economy. The kingdom of God is different. Right? He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson, and he's more of a disruptor than a young Mark Zuckerberg. Are we starting to see some of that? Let's fill it out a little bit more. One of the things that we have to understand about the time Jesus came into 
is that anti-Semitism was rampant, all right? Part of my problem with kids' Bibles is that they take horrific stories and make them cute, all right? Daniel and the lion's den is not cute. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon, when he invaded Judah, he killed 80, 80% of the Jewish population. It's not cute. That's genocide. That's violence. So Nebuchadnezzar starts this wave of foreign occupation in Israel and it's, 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 try, it's trying to stamp out the Jewish people. One of the things that would happen when a foreign power would invade Israel, the first thing they would do is they would march into the temple and they'd march into the Holy of Holies. And Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took money, took the treasure out of the temple. Why is he doing that? It's not just because he needs the money. It's because he's trying to say, oh, I'm not supposed to go in here? Oh, this is like sacred? Oh, your God doesn't like it when I'm in here? Whoops. What happened? Nothing? I'm God. It's humiliating. And he takes their money and he spends it. Nebuchadnezzar is bad. It keeps getting worse. Ptolemy, uh, basically, you know, Alexander the Great, just kind of in that line. Alexander the Great didn't mind the Jews, but Ptolemy did. Ptolemy goes into the temple and he kills a pig. And he sprays pig blood everywhere. Now, if you know anything about Torah, that's not good. That's a big no-no. It's humiliating. Ptolemy is pretty bad, but we get this other character who's even worse. Antiochus Epiphanes VI. His, name, his last name wasn't Epiphanes. That was the name he gave himself. Uh, Epiphanes means uh, vision of God. So uh, here's a guy who was anti-Semitic and thought he was a god. So he's basically like Kanye West of the ancient world. A lot of Kanye fans out there. Too soon, too soon. Antiochus was a really bad guy. Antiochus outlawed circumcision. And any mother that circumcised their young boy, what he would do is he would take that boy, that baby boy, precious little child, and he'd use it as a noose to hang the mother in public. It's sick, it's violent, it's gross. And so what's starting to happen is there's this tension building in Israel. It's mandated that these foreign powers are saying, eat pork or we'll kill you. And so there's this tension of, do we follow God or do we follow man? And there was a group of people, a political party, who rose up during this time. And they said, here's how we're going to survive this. We're going to follow Torah with all our energy. They're going to try to strike us down. We'll fight back, but we're also going to follow Torah with everything we've got. We know these people today as the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not like your grandmother in her church, okay? They weren't like, give me that old-time religion, give me that. That's not what they were trying to do, all right? It wasn't like they were just like sticks in the mud, like the Bible says. That's not what they were trying to do, all right? They assumed they were going to heaven when they died, all right? We're God's people. Of course, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. What they were worried about was a political strategy. How do we get, how do we get these, these people who are occupying us off our backs, what do we do? We follow Torah, and when we follow Torah, God's going to respond by our obedience by providing a human Savior called Messiah. 
A Messiah will come and they'll rescue us. And many people believed that around 167 B.C. that such a Messiah came. His name was Matthias Maccabean and his son Judas Maccabean. All right? Their, their last name was the Hasmanians, uh, but they called them Maccabeans because that means hammer. They were the hammer of God going to stamp out foreign oppressors. And so in 167, 164, they, they revolted, they rebelled, and they threw off the Syrians and Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and in 2 Maccabees 10.7, we get the story of Judas Maccabees marching into Jerusalem while they wave palm branches at him, shouting Hosanna. Sound familiar? And then he purifies the temple. He did this on the 25th of Kislev, which is basically December 25th. Eight days it took him to purify the temple. That's where we get the, uh, the, the holiday Hanukkah, which Jesus celebrates in John's gospel. Judas Maccabeus, his father's last words to him, do you know what they were? Render unto the Gentiles the things that are the Gentiles. What do they mean by that? Are they oppressing you? Oppress them back. Fight back. That's the world Jesus steps into. He stepped into a world. Oh, by the way, we got to talk about the Romans for a little bit. You ever wonder why in the Bible they talk about Judah and then the New Testament they talk about Judea? It's because the Romans invaded Judah and changed his name to Judea and they were... Israel saw them as even worse than all the people who came before them. Pontius Pilate, he was a Roman governor who ruled from 26 to 36 AD. It's estimated that he had tens of thousands of Jews crucified. The Romans took whatever Jews were left and took 90% of them below the poverty line. They set up a puppet king in Jerusalem, a guy called Herod the Great. Herod was paranoid. He thought everyone was always trying to take his power. So what did he do? He had hundreds of his members of his own family killed. Does that make sense of Christmas, the slaughter of the innocents? Right? Hey, there's a new king born. Where is he? So that I might worship him. What does he do? He kills everybody two years old and younger. Jesus grew up with hardly anybody his age. Do you understand that? Uh, Amy and I, a couple years ago, got to go to the killing fields in Cambodia. It's so sobering. So sobering. And, and a, a friend of ours who was there said, hey, if you look around, and this, at the time this was the age, I don't know what it'd be now, but they're like, you notice there's nobody really in their 40s. And we looked around and there, what, there, were, there were older people and there were young people. And there was like a whole gap of people missing. Why? Killing fields. That's the world Jesus comes into. And so there was a strategy. The Pharisees had a strategy. 95% of the population was Pharisees. It was a political group. It was an idea. How do we overthrow it? How do we stop this oppression? How do we make it stop? We fight back. Liberation from Rome would come through strict obedience to Torah. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Now we're starting to see how controversial Jesus was. Jesus is saying, if you want to overthrow Rome, you can't use their economics. You can't use their politics. Jesus had just raised his friend Lazarus. John's gospel is broken up into sets of seven. So there's seven I am statements and there's seven miracles. This is a really big one. Everything changes after this miracle. Here's why. John 11, starting in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary 
had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. That's good, right? Woo! But some, uh uh-oh, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. What's happening? Jesus comes in and he challenges the status quo. There's oppression, but we're not going to deal with it like you've been dealt with in the past. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to do nonviolence. We're going to do this differently. And the current leading political party is like, this is picking up steam. We got to kill him. He needs to die. Why? Look, it's better that one person dies than we all die. And this ironic statement kicks off one of those amazing things about God. It just reveals this amazing idea about God. It's that what people mean for evil, God can use for good. Because listen to what happens. He did not say this on his own. This is John's commentary. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they committed to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judah. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Here's what's absolutely amazing. And Jesus is cooler than Beyonce. He's wiser than Brene Brown. He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson. And he's more of a disruptor than a young Mark Zuckerberg. What's he doing? In the book of Maccabees, it talks about martyrs. God loves martyrs, people who die for others. The Maccabeans thought that martyrs were like a, they, they were like a metal pole in a field that just attracted the lightning of God's wrath away from the nation. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life for these people who are trying to kill me to rescue them. That's, what, that's exactly what Caiaphas is saying. You don't realize it's better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. We call that substitution. Just like on the basketball court when one player comes out and one goes in and plays for them. That's what Caiaphas is saying. It's better that he plays for us. Now he had no idea what he was saying. He's like, kill him so we all can live. And God's like, exactly. Totally. Let's do that. Now, That was not their intention. They're like, kill him and make all this disruption, all this controversy go away. You guys, I kill him and then people will experience life. Now we can understand also one of the most famous verses in John's biography about Jesus. God so loved that he gave. 
This is what it's talking about. Jesus comes into a world. It says he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But what does he do? Does he let that stop him? No. He gives up his life so that the nation can live. And not only the nation, but the scattered people of God can be one. What men meant for evil, God uses for good. Now, it keeps going though. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly. Craig, I thought you said he was fearless. That sounds like he's kind of scared. They're trying to kill him so he hides. Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's not what's happening at all. Look with me again um, at verse 45. It says this. Uh, Many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and they seen what Jesus did and they believed in him. What does it mean that they believed in him? That phrase means they committed to him like he was their political Messiah. So Jesus sees he's got, a, he's got a following going. And if he stays in public, he's going to gather more of a following and Rome will crush it. So he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to step into the background So this doesn't stir up more than it has to. He's protecting people even then. What else is he doing? He's saying this, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. He's in complete control. He's cooler than Beyonce. He's wiser than Brene Brown. He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson. And he's more of a disruptor than a young Mark Zuckerberg. Jesus comes into a world that had an answer for its problems. And he said, can I answer what's really going on? I'm going to die for my enemies. John says this at the end of his gospel. He says, there were so many things. Uh, This is John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is what? The Messiah, that coming conqueror who is going to overthrow Israel's enemies, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. Jesus of Nazareth came into a world that had ideas about how the world should work. We live in a world that has ideas about how we handle oppression. Oh, is the government pushing too hard? We push back. Oh, are my neighbors saying something? I'm going to just argue back. See, the, the methodology of the Pharisees is alive and well. And Jesus challenges that. And he puts his money where his mouth is. He says this. He says, look, I'm going to let this kill me. This is how much I believe this. And when, and when we receive, when we believe, when we trust, it says this in the beginning of Jesus' biography, John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him who believe in his name, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. I really believe that Jesus is the most compelling person who's ever lived and he's worth following with everything we have. And I also believe that what he is inviting us into is our complete and total allegiance to him and his way of being in the world. And that's scary.
Whew, that's hard. Uh, there's a professor at Penn who's a, he's a professor of neuroscience and marketing. So yes, brands do think a lot about neuroscience. Uh, and they took all these participants and they're asking, what's shaping people today? Like we really feel like religion has less of an impact on people. We think brands are shaping people more than religion is. So like people don't buy Calvin Klein because they think it's like the most comfortable shirt or the best made material. They buy it because of, well, I'm someone who wears Calvin Klein. These are my people and this is what we do. So Apple, for example, uh, they gave a bunch of Apple users a test and they had their, their minds hooked up to a brain scan and they gave them tests, but then when they would show them an image of the Apple logo, their responses were more creative. Right? Why is that? Because they've bought into this narrative like, oh man, I use Apple. I'm like this cool hipster, creative, like, you know, young buck who's like bucking the system and, you know, paying a multi-billion dollar corporation, but whatever. Um, Samsung users, you're like, oh, I'm not an Apple user. I'm a Samsung user. They found that Samsung users didn't have the same positive feeling towards Samsung, but they did have negative feelings toward Apple. And what they theorize, what they theorize is that people buy Samsung not because they love Samsung, but because they hate Apple. They're just, these people are annoying. So they're like, right? But what does that mean? It means that we all have these identities and we're all doing things that shape us and we're all buying into certain stories. What does it look like to let Jesus shape our identity? See, behavior flows out of character. And character flows out of what we think about ourselves, our identity. And somebody can change our identity, but they can't change it without trust. I don't want you to believe in Jesus. Like, oh yeah, he died, he lived, he died. I'll check all the boxes. John's Gospel says even the demons believe and tremble. So this is like a litmus test of like how well we're doing. Like, that's just not, I don't want to go there, okay? The invitation is to give, like, to trust Jesus so much that we're like, here I am. I live my life with open hands before you, Jesus. We're, I'll go where, you've, where you're leading. But what we're going to see in this biography is he's not always going to safe, comfortable places. And so the Gospel of John is a biography about Jesus that is aimed at building our trust. Because we don't let people change our identity unless we trust them. And Jesus knows that. And so the whole gospel, it starts with a wedding and it ends with Jesus on the beach asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And the story is an invitation to give ourselves, just like a marriage, to give ourselves to Jesus saying, I trust you. And that story has ups and downs. There are moments where all Jesus' followers leave him. They're like, right? do, you, you know, do you have a little bit more pity for Judas? Judas, like the disciple, was named after Judas Maccabeus. And what do we know about Messiahs? Messiahs don't die. Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die. Judas is like, ah, I think I hedged my bets on the wrong horse. I'm out of here. The invitation as we look at this gospel, my vision, my hope for us as a church, 
is that we would regularly be drawn to a place each Sunday where we commit ourselves to Jesus. Where just each Sunday we say, I'll follow you this week. Yes, I'll say yes to you. And that by doing that all along the way, our trust would be built up so that eventually our identity is being shaped by him. He truly is cooler than Beyonce. Give me time. We'll get there. He's wiser than Brene Brown. So I'm like, I already knew that. I don't like Brene Brown. Well, shame on you. She's great. He's more controversial than Jordan Peterson, and he's more disruptive than a young Mark Zuckerberg. And the question is, will we let him disrupt us? Jesus, we confess that we've made you too small. Your death for the nation gave us life. You climbed into a world where you had done no wrong and you took on our oppressors. God, I pray that as we look at this biography, each week it would be an invitation to really examine our trust, to live in that tension. Man, I don't trust you, Jesus. God, I pray you'd give us the courage to admit our unbelief to you. And in doing so, God, I pray on the other side, we come out loving you with everything we have. Father, I pray that this season for us as a church going through John's gospel would be a season of personal renewal. We'd see Jesus in new ways. We would trust not because we have to, but because you really are compelling and worth following with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.